there's two types of props people. There's the type that take things and sort of steal stuff. And uh, there's the type that accidentally end up with stuff. And basically everything I've got, because you're not really supposed to take the things. And it's funny, I wish I would have taken more. But I do have a lot of names and a lot of stories to tell you if you wish. So go ahead. Hello, and welcome to Say Podcast and Die, the podcast where we sit in our closet and talk about goosebumps. Indeed we do. And who are you? I'm Alyssa. And I'm Andy. And we have the most exciting episode to date today because we are talking with Alan Doucette. I guess we'll let him introduce himself, but he was part of all of your childhoods, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, my name's Alan Doucette. I was the prop master on every Goosebumps episode, all 74 of them. Yeah. amazing. He's already been sharing a lot of stuff with us on social media, and we'll be posting more going forward of all the great pieces of memorabilia that he's been so generous to send our way. So we'll be posting some images this week. But today, we're going to talk about Goosebumps. And you're you're fans of the show when you were little, you used to watch it? Is that what sort of brings you to it? Yeah, Yeah. in the books. Yeah, it was quite something for its time, I think. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got involved in it. Um, First of all, I used to love a television series called The Twilight Zone. Yeah. Which was an anthology. Um, It was black and white. Uh, It was for adults. But um, boy, I really loved that show. And um, when Goosebumps came around, I pursued it. I wanted to do it. Um, I was doing other things at the time. I was in the wrong union. I had to join a new union to do Goosebumps. But I had a friend who was a co-worker, a gentleman named Charles Brave. He was season one. He was the production manager on Goosebumps. I knew him from a television series I did before that called Catwalk. And I called him and I said, I'd like to do Goosebumps. And he said, okay, you know, we have other people in mind, but we'll, we'll give you a, a, a shot, an interview. And at the interview, I remember I dropped another person's name, uh, Patrick Doyle. He was one of the producers on the show. I said I'd work with him from a TV series called The Campbells back in 1986. That was a long time ago. That was before I was married. And I've been married almost 34 years. <laughs> and so I think when I dropped the name Patrick Doyle, they knew I'd been around and that I was probably the guy for the job. And um, I remember being so happy. I remember when they called and told me I got it. I was very, very excited to do it. Uh, I ended up doing all 74 episodes. I was a props man on every one. I was there for pretty much every day of it. And I saw a lot of amazing things happen there. Uh, Met a lot of, I I think, future stars. Um, I think you know a couple of them. Hayden Christensen is one. And of course, uh, Ryan Gosling is the other. Yeah. Say cheese and die, classic. <laughs> and I also got to meet one of my heroes on that show, which was Adam West. Yeah, yeah. we Batman. Yeah, we watched that one last night. Actually, the two-parter, The Masked Mutant, and it seems like they really went all out on the budget in terms of effects, in terms of set, and everything like that. That's right. We had a couple of really early successes. I'd have to look at the numbers, but I believe that when Terror Tower debuted. It had about 18 million households in America watching. Wow. You know, that's that's um, that's 30 million people or so watching it. And after that, I think the, there was more money put into it. We had a lot of kids that were watching. We did some really good stuff, I thought. And Mutant was one of them. Um, we did that 
uh, with costumes custom designed, comics that were, you know, had to be produced. There was a lot of illustration that was sort of in the background on that. There, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But yeah, I got to meet Adam West. And uh, it's funny, when I was a kid, um, I grew up watching Batman. I also grew up watching Star Trek, was another one of my favorites. And another show I really loved watching was Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. Yeah. And little did I know that I worked with all three of my heroes eventually, Adam West, I worked with uh, Captain Kirk, of course, William Shatner, and I also worked with David Carradine on uh, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. So uh, for me, you know, that was working with Adam West was a bit of working with, you know, one of your heroes. And I do have a quick story about that. Uh, there's a scene there where you just saw it where he's tied in a chair. Yeah. I had to tie him up in a chair. And uh, I remember I said to him, have you ever been tied up before, Mr. West? <laughs> and he said to me, you know I have. <laughs> that was kind of cute. And uh, the thing about tying a guy up is that you have, to, you have to tie them up repeatedly and it all has to match. So we tied them up, you know, as quickly as we thought we could. They would look okay. And then we had to take them out for a reason. And I remember when I was tying up again, the, the director started saying to me, like, hurry up, guy. You know, we've, we've got to go here. <laughs> and I said to them, you know, sorry, but, you know, I've got to make it match. And I remember Adam West came to my defense and he said, yeah, you know, guys, you know, he's got to tie me up and make it look right. <laughs> Boy, having your childhood hero defending you was, was a big moment for me. So. Oh, my gosh. That's one of my favorite memories from, from working with Mr. West, the late, great Mr. West. Yeah, yeah that's great. It's also very thematically appropriate to that episode. <laughs> he he kind of was, he's a bit goofy, you know. He had a very uh, campy attitude, and I, I really, I, I, I got along well with him, Um my assistant, uh, Jill Bedford, uh, as well, uh, the two of us were there with him and we had to take care of him because uh, he was not a young man at that point and he was yeah. wearing a costume. It obscured his vision and we were walking through a real industrial set with pipes and stuff. And I, I remember Jill went up to him a couple times and said, Mr. West, can I help you walk through here? And he said, sure. And he took her hand and they walked together through things. You have to remember a lot of the people that we worked with on that show were wearing very, very visually impairing costumes and um we had to go out of our way to help these kids and also stunt performers um you know to to not get hurt and that was a big part we didn't want anybody to get hurt a lot of the kids were young but anyway that's a different story so could you tell us a little bit about what being a prop master entails sort of what are the things that you're responsible for certainly i think the best way to look at it is there's two different types of jobs to do with physical objects on a movie or tv set there is a prop and there's a, a what's called a set piece and there's two different departments that handle them there's the uh, props department and we handle small uh things that are basically the things you touch so in your scene it would probably be the headphones and the microphone and any sort of instruments but the prop master wouldn't be responsible for getting the couch okay or the curtains or the carpets that's all set dressing so i was the property master i was the head of the props department um, in those days, of course, we did a lot, including um, I was responsible for reading all the scripts, deciding what we needed, and then uh, having them all on set ready to go. I also did uh, most of the special effects the first couple of seasons. So if you see smoke or flames in any episode, that was also me. And then while I wasn't responsible for getting the furniture, um, in those days, uh, we moved the furniture. So I was also the on-set dresser responsible for moving the stuff. But my primary job was to stick with the actors to get ready to hand them their props and when they were done the scene to take the prop away get ready for the next scene and I did that um, we usually went about eight eight and a half months a year it was a long job so that's what I did 
Yeah, when I was watching the show, uh, we just we watched a few episodes the past few days to get ready for this interview, and I was really discovering I didn't know exactly what a prop was because I was wondering, you know, so when you're dealing with, say, if there's a computer screen with a web page on it, I mean, is that a prop? If you have like small animals you're wrangling, I understand you made worms wriggle uh, for the opening credits. Is that considered <laughs> a prop? Or I guess, yeah, I was wondering what the line is around what's a prop and what's not. It's a fairly broad term. Generally, animals wouldn't be us. However, worms were us. And there were a lot of worms on Goosebumps. There was the famous worms wriggling in the opening montage there when the credits rolled. And there was also an episode, uh, Go Eat Worms, uh, that was directed by, uh, unfortunately, he just passed away, Steve DeMarco. And I can tell you for that, we needed to get worms to wriggle. I mean, you don't want to see them lying there statically. So what we would do is we would buy them from bait shops. We would sort out all the soil from them. And then we would lay them out, and uh, the last thing was to get a little bit of uh, salt water. Oh. You'd put it in a little spritzer bottle, and you'd spritz them with the salt, and they would suddenly wriggle like crazy. <laughs> How did I learn that? From our uh, lighting technician, John Batello, the gaffer. He used to pick worms for a living, <laughs> and he told me that they don't like salt. So we did that, and I felt bad. It was not the nicest thing to do. However, at the end of it, I'd collect all the worms. I'd make sure they were all back where we needed them, and then I'd put them in my backyard. And Aww. the true story is we had crazy amount of worms in that house when I lived there. When it rained, they'd be the biggest worms you've ever seen. I would get bucketfuls of worms. <laughs> uh, after we were done filming, and I would dig a hole, and I would put them in. And I remember I thought, well, must them, they must have died. Most of them must have died because we you know, put them through things, salt, water, and other things. And I have to say that I, one time I went the next day and dug up that hole. There's one dead worm. The rest were all gone. Wow. So, uh, yeah, we did that. That was my worm trick anyway. And I, I think I did it a couple of times. Um, but uh, getting back to the, it wasn't really my responsibility, but I started to get really good at everything at some point. And I, I don't want to brag, but I sort of became the go-to guy for when something wasn't working, they would call me out. And I did a lot of things I shouldn't have probably done there, including I was an extra in several episodes. Oh, cool. A lot of times, if you saw somebody with a mask on that was doing something that wasn't too scary, it might have been me. Um, probably, I think one of my most famous roles, though, was as the props master in the episode Cry of the Cat. If you do see that, he talks about the prop master, and that is me. I remember I stuck my tongue out at him, if you look closely, at the director in that episode. I also carried the... Uh, the case with the slappy dummy up the stairs in uh, Night of the Living Dummy, I think when it first arrives. Do you remember that? Or if, yeah, if yeah. you haven't seen that, you should see that again. They hired another guy to do it. He just could not do it right. <laughs> so they said, maybe the props guy should go and do that. <laughs> I also remember being in a well that was a really a hole dug in the ground. Um pushing and pulling on a on on the case going in there. I did some I did some pretty wild stuff um while I was the uh, props master that I didn't really have to do, <laughs> but I did it because I thought I would be good at it and I thought that um it would get the day done and we could all go home. Is that pretty typical that you would be involved in that way or is was Goosebumps unusual in having you be a sort of jack of all trades and we won't tell your union. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was unusual. I've never really done as much as I've done uh, on a show as I did on Goosebumps. And I have to bring up my assistant, Jill Bedford. Um, she was from Hollywood. Uh, she'd worked on a lot of big movies down there. I was really lucky to have her. Between the two of us, we did everything. Uh, we did all the props. Uh, we manipulated all the set pieces on set. I thought we did it well. 
Uh, we even did things where they would, uh, we do blue screen manipulation. It's green screen now, but we used to put blue suits on and we would hold objects in front of a blue screen. And if stuff was floating in like uh, the invisible episode, yeah, that was us manipulating it. We did a lot of stuff and I've never done as much since, but um, you know, it was, a, it was a show that I wanted to do well. I wanted it to do well. Uh, I had kids. My son was five years old when that show came out. My daughter was born during Terror Tower. <laughs> so it was one of the things like dad was a bit of a hero. He's working on a kid's show and, and you know, I, I like to, to be able to do the best I could. And I, and I gave it all I could. So yeah, we did a lot of great stuff on that. I think looking back at it. Yeah, we agree. We really benefited from it growing up. You know, it was, I think the Twilight Zone comparison is that you made earlier is a really good one. Because uh, I think for both of us, we liked that it went to really dark places. It didn't feel like it was talking down to you ever. And I think it felt like the people making it really wanted it to be good, you yeah. know, which not all kids TV is. That's right. And I think you have to remember that I don't think anybody ever really died on the show. And as far as I remember, I think blood wasn't even allowed. So, oh, wow. you know, we got a lot done without being too over the edge, shall we say. Uh, although my daughter is was and still is terrified by Slappy. <laughs> Appropriately. <laughs> She's 25 now, but you have to remember that, you know, when I was working on it, she would have been little and seeing those things, little those episodes a little too early for her liking. So yeah, she's, she's a little scared of Slappy. <laughs> well, actually, so we were wondering, so how did you get into doing props? What was your, how did you get into this line of work? Well, um, did you uh, go to college or f any sort of film school or anything like that uh, in your case? No, no film no school film for school. us. We just uh, did, just did art school, but for creative writing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to pardon me, but I thought you had just in the way you did the room tone, which I thought was very professional. Oh, thank you. You can YouTube everything now. <laughs> I did take a class on podcasting. Though, oh, that's so, true. Yeah, 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 she took a podcasting class. I'm actually teaching podcasting right now <laughs> to some students. I uh, took a course in, in film and television at Humber College in, in Toronto uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, I wanted to get into filmmaking because, funny enough, I walked upon a set when I was in high school at the Union Station downtown Toronto. I walked in and they were making a movie there. It was a movie called Silver Streak uh, with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. I remember seeing fake license plates and I remember seeing a, a newspaper stand with newspaper titles that had been custom made and it really thrilled me so I decided to take film production and um, after that it's a question of what are you going to do you know you've got uh, so many different areas to go into a couple things that pushed me towards props I was a musician and I had learned how to do a lot of um, things to do with firearms um, simply because my grandfather used to like to hunt so I used to go out and uh, did a lot of hunting so I got all my certificates for handling firearms which is actually quite rare in Canada you can't buy a gun here without having the right certificates you have to take courses it's a lot different than in the states seems like a better system honestly <laughs> Well, we could go into that, you know, on separate uh, things. Um, but yeah, I had my firearms uh, license and um, that got me into props because people would call me and say, do you have your gun license, right? Yep. Well, come on out and do this. And I quickly realized that between all the things I'd done, you know, um, I'd sold restaurant equipment. I used to repair swimming pools. I uh, f handled firearms. I um, knew how to cook quite well. And uh, yeah, all those things together made it seem like props was the right area to go to. So that's where I went. And I've been here ever since. And I still do it. But currently, I actually work more in set dressing. <laughs> and I've just finished um, a seven and a half month gig during a uh, pretty big, you know, uh, pandemic on Handmaid's Tale. 
um, wearing a mask every day, going in for hours and hours, and it, it was tough. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so I still work. I'm 61, and I'm uh, planning on working another couple of years and then retiring. <laughs> That's exciting. As you're talking about all these things, you know, all these skills that you're able to bring to it, it seems like a job where you have to yeah, maybe know a little bit about a lot or be able to improvise in such ways that you can draw on all these different skills. That's right. Um, you literally have to be a jack of all trades, but master of none. You have to know a little bit about everything. But the things that you do have to know a great deal about are things about keeping people safe. So in case of firearms, you know, you just have to make sure that they're not loaded, silly things like that. Um, and in other situations, if there's going to be fire and smoke and those sort of things, I mean, you have to make sure there's a fire extinguisher close at hand. I mean, on an episode of Goosebumps, it was uh, Vampire Breath, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, a gentleman just quite accidentally uh, turned on a light and the the bulb blew out and sent a flying ember that hit some curtains. And that whole set started to catch on fire. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And if it was not for the director of photography, who I'd like to talk about a little bit later, Brian Hebb, that whole set would have caught on fire. We were looking for a fire extinguisher and he was such a pro. He said, no, no, just pull the curtains off the wall and step on them. Wow. And we did that and put it out. And uh, I tell you, the next morning we came in the set and there was 20 fire extinguishers. On set. <laughs> but that was something where I learned that, you know, usually I would have asked for a fire extinguisher if there was flames. But this day there was no flame scheduled. But uh, that's something I'm talking about, about keep, keeping people safe. Uh, and that's a big part of, of what a prop master does. And, and yeah, we, we put a lot of kids in very awkward situations when I look back on it. Uh, we had kids in coffins going down the Humber River. <laughs> Uh, we had kids, um, you know, doing all kinds of pretty wild stuff. And I think I'm proud to say that nobody ever really got hurt. There was no big incidents on that show. So we did something right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually curious to hear more about the chaos. Uh, like, were there things where you're like, oh, no, we need to improvise this right now. What are we going to do? Well, there are a couple of stories I, I could tell. Uh, I think funny enough, let me get into my what I consider my favorite episode, which was um, The Girl Who Cried Monster. Yeah. I don't know what it is I love about that episode, but I will tell you it was the very first episode we ever filmed and it was filmed at nights. In those days uh, with Brian Hebb, all the night scenes were filmed at night. So we had kids that had never been up all night <laughs> filming four in the morning. If you want to know why they look a little, you know, freaked out and maybe it was a good thing. I mean, it, it, it got them looking a certain way, but you know, uh, you know, it was, it, that was difficult, but um, on the girl who cried monster, what I love about it, it's just, it's a girl. Maybe she tells too many tall tales. Maybe she likes to, you know, cry wolf a bit. But, I mean, she goes down in that library and her librarian, or he turns into a monster, a bug-eyed monster with stuff flying out here, the eyes, and eating bugs. And, I mean, it was, what I liked about that, it was just instant terror, you know, in my my opinion. You know, no beating around the bush, you know. It really got into it. And then there's that scene where he comes to their house and so on very very creepy and um yes that that episode i really like but there was supposed to be when she goes back to the library for sort of the final meeting with mr mortman there was supposed to be a whole chase scene going through that library and we filmed that on location at the uft library in toronto and we ran out of time we just did not have time to shoot this very complicated scene so she ducked through his legs and that was it. And <laughs> you wouldn't know that, but I think it's a great way for her to have escaped, but it was not scripted at all. Oh, that's it was so not funny. scripted at all. It was supposed to be a totally different way. But that's how we ended up doing it. Yeah, it was I remember that scene too. It was very effective also. Yeah. 
so that episode we watched yesterday, and it's so grotesque in certain parts, too. Like, the way that you got the crickets and the tarantula and everything, and it looks so real. How involved were you with the bug-eating scenes? <laughs> More than I would have liked to have been. <laughs> um, of course, all the bugs that he eats were actually made out of licorice. We had a props builder build that. I thought he did an excellent job. But I will tell you a funny story about the tarantulas. Um, I can't remember the name of the, the animal wrangler at the time. Unfortunately, his name has escaped me. But um, he did leave me in charge. of the. Uh, we were shooting all night. And he said, look, I've, I've got to get up in the morning. Would you mind looking after the tarantulas? And I said, sure. He said, okay, I just want to show you a couple things. And so I said, fine. He said, okay, this is how you pick up a tarantula. And he goes to show me how to pick up a tarantula. And I'm fine with it all. And he says, but... To me, you just have to be careful because you don't want to get near their fangs. And he flipped it over and he revealed the fangs at that point. And that's when I realized I wasn't going to be able to do it. I, I'm like, I wish you wouldn't show me the fangs. No, I won't pick it up. And uh, my assistant, Jill Bedford, was on my shoulder and she said, oh, I'll do it. And she stepped forward and uh, she was there for the critical part where we had to, you know, hand uh, move them around into different areas and... It's one of those things that's like, yeah, talk about having to do a lot of different things. Yep, I, I was asked to do wrangling on that, but um, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did ha we did have another episode with snakes. Um, I can't remember the name of it, though. Um, uh, but we had it had a lot to do with snakes, and as a young girl was the, the star of it. Uh, it. It will come to me. Maybe we'll do the research after the episode. But um, in that one, we had real snakes. I wasn't handling them at all. We had a, an animal wrangler, and... We had one scene where we had to piss off a snake a little bit. We had to get him a little bit upset. Um, I think it was a python. And uh, we were in a sort of a closed situation. I remember at one point, there was just this horrible stench that <laughs> happened. And the animal wrangler came out and said, yeah, that's what a snake does when it's really mad. It releases this stuff. <laughs> and we had to clear the set. It was just the worst smell. It's kind oh of skunky, God. kind of awful. That is the only time in my life I've ever actually gotten an angry fan letter. It's something that we joke about in the film industry where if we do something, where we cheat something around, we move something, we'll say, oh, it's okay if there's an angry fan letter, just address it to me and I'll answer it. <laughs> and that, that letter never comes, of course. But on Goosebumps, it did happen one time. A letter arrived at me. It was addressed to Alan, the prop master, and it said, I didn't like the way you guys handled the snakes on that. Huh, no. You know, I felt bad about it. Uh, but then I read it more and it referred to something where I realized there was no real snakes for that. Oh, that was oh. all fake snakes. <laughs> so, in fact, uh, my regrets about pissing off that python, but all we did was take it out of its cage and put it on the floor with a trained animal wrangler, and it lost its stuff. Um, but um, in terms of this girl being upset with me, I was able to say, no, 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 that we, we didn't do that. We weren't allowed to do that. It was kind of against the rules to, to hurt any critters. So, yeah. That's my story about the snake episode. That's so funny that the python shut down the whole set. <laughs> it was pretty stinky. Yeah. So. I had no idea that that was one of their defenses. No. <laughs> I guess it doesn't translate as well to the screen. Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of the famous episodes? Yeah, uh, I think absolutely. We should go into it. So, you know, I think the one that has captivated most people has been the haunted mask. Yes. Uh, the original one with, uh, I believe her name is Catherine uh, Short. Uh, start in that? Or Long. Long, I think. Catherine Long, yes. Um, that episode uh, was directed by a gentleman named uh, Timothy Bond, who was a very experienced um, Hollywood director. He had directed, what impressed me is that he directed an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh. He came in and he, I thought he 
produced a very, very uh, powerful episode. And it's really resonated with kids to this day. Um, kids don't want to wear masks <laughs> if they go out for, for Halloween and stuff. But um, that episode uh, was filmed at night. Uh, we did some very, very difficult things on that show, walking through uh, fields. Um, the very opening scene in that, um, I think there's a pumpkin patch. And then the kids jump up and scare her. I mean, that was done in the middle of the night, out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but... You know, we made a little patch. Uh, we got pumpkins. We made pumpkins because they, they're not bright orange. And the time of year, we filled it from the middle of summer. You can't get orange pumpkins. It needs to be cold for them to get um, the right color. So we actually painted green pumpkins, orange, <laughs> things like that. Um, that episode stands out as being very difficult to make. Um, but uh, the effects were worth it. The, the effort was worth it, I think. Everybody uh, really, that one stands out. As does A Night in Terror Tower, which is another episode um, that was filmed at night uh, in a castle in Toronto called Castle Loma. Oh, cool. Um, that one, uh, I do have a prop from that one. I, I would have it here. It's in my garage. I actually have the executioner's axe from that. Oh, wow. And I just saw a promo for that where the young uh, boys walking around, uh, they did a little two-minute promo for that. And you can see there's a scene where the guy's holding, well, I, I own that. It's made out of rubber. It's not actually real. <laughs> but uh, perhaps it's my largest one. How do you accidentally take the axe home from the set? <laughs> <laughs> the truth is that that one, again, I shouldn't have had. I, 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 we had several. Um, that one was very, very soft foam rubber. Um, and it was in, um, I used to have a locker that we kept things like rakes and shovels. And when the show was over and I mean, everything was dissolved and there was no chance to even return it. I opened up my locker and there was the executioner's axe. So it kind of quietly went home and yeah. So, (laughs) but you know, I, I go back to, uh, if I was a real stealer of stuff, I would have a whole collection of things and I wouldn't be employed anymore because Everybody hates a dishonest props man. And don't forget, I haven't just done Goosebumps. I've done a lot of stuff. I was actually the props master on my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah, I saw that. Which for a time was the largest, uh, it was the most uh, highest grossing independent feature of all time. And uh, on that one, boy, I wish I would have kept a few things. (laughs) Uh, Because they sell, you can sell them. But um, I could have sold uh, all kinds of stuff I would have kept on that. But I returned everything. I have a Polaroid and I have maybe one of the little invitation cards. Uh, I mean, and again, it ended up in my graphics file. But anyway, that's that's the things. I wish I had more. I do have a few things behind me. Um, Oh, I, I might as well pull it up now. We could talk about this, another great episode, which is... Da-da-da. Oh, the Polaroid. I just made loud. Uh, that is so cool. Yes. I love that image. Um, so we're looking right now at the uh, the Polaroid from Say Cheese and Die, where the family picnic turns skeletal, and it is amazing. Yes, and that was actually done by a friend of mine, because don't forget, this would have been done in maybe 1996. It needed computer graphics. There's nobody really in our uh, art department that was able to produce those, so... We farmed it out to a gentleman um, named Ray Palazzo. He had a company called uh, Ray's Typographics. And he did an incredible job on those pictures. I, I was so impressed by what he did. He even gave me two different versions of it um, for approvals. And here's the approval photo here that he sent us. And you can see he said, well, do you want them with hair or without hair? 
and we chose with hair. Yeah. Oh, yes. And they don't have their like apron and everything on in the first version too. That's right. And uh, But we did go with this one. We did go with that one, I believe. And you can see at the bottom there, you even see the little approval tag that he would make up. That, and he didn't like when stuff was had to be changed. So it says here, please proofread and check your graphic carefully. We are not responsible after your approval. So he sent this to me. We had to approve it. If we got it wrong, it was too too late, too bad. So. <laughs> well, I like the call that you made too, because I feel like the skeletons with the the, the clothes on makes a little more sense too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean it's like you see them posing there, and then you know suddenly it has to relate back to that. I mean, we had a lot to tell in in thirty minutes on an episode like that. I yeah. mean, twenty two minutes uh, if you if you take out the commercials and the credits. So you had to be very quick and, and very direct sometimes. You had to sort of hit kids over the head with stuff almost. Um, we used to have a little thing where there would always be a little, with the, the dummy, there'd be a little set of footprints that would go around different places. Well, none of the footprints ever made any sense. You just had to be able to see them. So if we were outside and you're following footprints, you would get white sand and lay it on the dark ground to see the footprints. If we were inside, we would get black spray paint that was removable, put it on the floor to leave the footprints. I mean... There has to be footprints here, but if you think about it, how could you get such a perfect set of footprints to go for, you know, a quarter mile? It just wouldn't happen. So um, there's a lot of stuff that we did. Uh, you didn't want to confuse kids. So you just have to be direct with, with, with things. You have to just, re- as I say, hit, hit kids over the head with it is what I used to say. Yeah, I think, I mean, we were appreciating that too because we were watching them on Netflix where you can see like 21 minutes, 22 minutes and just because we've been reading the books, it, just appreciating the amount of information that is crammed into just like, you know, it's the first 30 seconds you've established, you know, who are your characters? What's the story going to be about? All of these things. That's right. And, and, and but you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, great storylines by R.L. Stein, who I met several times. I actually have a few signed Goosebumps books. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. Which I treasure. They're in a special place, so I, I didn't bring them out. But I do remember when I asked him to sign one of my books, this is back in 1995, I'd never forget. He said to me, well, I'm just starting to get used to this whole people wanting my autograph thing. And could you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> How many times he's probably done his autograph now. But back then it was fresh for him. And he came out to introduce, um, you know, several episodes. Uh, I believe Terror Tower was one. Um Haunted Mask was another. Yeah. He would usually come out to introduce the uh, the the big ones. Uh, we I do have a photograph of myself with them. Again, it's in my archives, which means I can't find them right now. But um, I'd like to pull that out because we had crew photos, um, and uh, he was he sat for one, and I was great. It was great to have him and to meet him because uh, he was he was a very very inventive man. Uh, he still is, of course, a very smart man, and he wrote some great stories, didn't he? That we adapted, of course, to our needs to be to fit into 22 minutes and you know my son would say well dad it's not really like the book i'm like yeah i know but it's tv it's not a book yeah yeah i mean i i don't know i really i love the adaptations and especially when they answer questions that didn't totally add up with all due respect to arl stein there were sometimes things that didn't make sense totally in the book Mm -hmm. and the haunted mask is one like that where they kind of came around and answered answered some of the questions um in the tv version were there any other favorite episodes or really memorable episodes you worked on Oh, absolutely. Um, I have to say that of all the directors, we had a lot of great directors come through there. I mean, we had William Fruitt, who is a Canadian directing legend. He um, directed a movie called Wedding in White that I um, 
I saw when I was in film school. He also wrote the screenplay for one of the most famous Canadian movies that Americans never heard of called Going Down the Road. Um, it is really a, a classic 1960s um, Canadian film. He wrote that. So we were really lucky to have uh, William Fruitt. Uh, he directed a lot of the great episodes. He directed Stay Out of the Basement, uh, Terror Tower, uh, The Werewolf of Fever Swamp, Attack of the Mutant, that you watched yesterday, right? Um, he did The Haunted Mask 2. Um, he did a lot of great episodes. However, I feel that I have to say the funnest director to work with was a gentleman by the name of Ron Oliver. Ron Oliver, uh, the first time I met him was for Welcome to Camp Nightmare. He, that was the first episode he directed. And when he came out, I realized he was going to be different than the other directors. He was uh, younger. He was a lot of fun. And he knew how to get kids at ease. Um, as opposed to uh, Willem Fruitt's method, which was to kind of get kids a little scared. <laughs> I mean, he would come up to them and he would be very like, No, that was wrong. I want you to do it this way. And then he would have a little smile on his face. I mean, you know, if a kid isn't looking scared and they're smiling, you got to scare him. And he would, he would, and he would have things with him through, like, I want to see big eyes from you and breathing, heavy breathing and stuff. And like when an old guy with a beard that looks like a biker comes up and you're 12 years old and tells you to do that, I think you're going to be a little frightened. And that was his thing. But Ron Oliver, totally different approach. He befriended all the kids. The kids all loved him. Maybe he worked a little harder in the casting to get kids that he knew could come through. That's how we got Ryan Gosling. I mean, I mean, look what that man has done. I just saw him in, uh, I saw the premiere of um, the Neil Armstrong movie, First Man. Uh, he's, he's a big movie star now. And uh, when I saw him, he was just a kid. But I do remember Ron Oliver saying to Ryan several times, Ryan, you're the hero. You're the hero in this episode. You know, this whole episode revolves around you. I want you to keep your head up. I want you to look like you're a hero. And sometimes props men are very privileged because we're just standing off the set, just, just a little ways away to give them room, but we're hearing every word. Right. Sometimes we shouldn't pass on what we've heard, but in that situation, I do remember Ron several times saying, you know, because, you know, he, he was a kid. Ron was a kid. He's nervous. Coming up and saying, Ryan, you need to remember this is your episode. This is where you save the day. Yeah. And that sort of things. And it's something that really stood out to me. Um, so, yeah, Ron Oliver did, directed some great episodes. He, what did he do? He did um, the very last season. Um, he directed, I think, every episode and wrote all the scripts, too. And that's how far it had come. It, it basically, Goosebumps ended up as a Ron Oliver <laughs> vehicle. Um, and they changed a bit, too. I mean, I mean, you might not have noticed it, but it became a little more campy mm -hmm. and a little more sort of comical. And I'm talking about episodes like uh, How I Got My Shrunken Head. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another one is, I think, Deep Trouble. Is that the one? Um, the Mermaid. That was the very last episode that we uh, we ever filmed. Oh, wow. And by that point, uh, yeah, I remember the last day. Uh, unfortunately, what happened with our production companies, we were doing three shows at once at that point. Um, I was kind of in charge of them all. We were doing Dear America, Goosebumps and Animorphs. Oh, wow. A lot of money and resources got put into Animorphs yeah. and taken off of Goosebumps for the last season. And so yeah, I think they're great episodes. It's just that they, there was not as much money being put into them and there was not as much interest in scaring kids as sort of entertaining them. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, we didn't do the greatest stuff the last season, but we did some memorable stuff nonetheless. 
Yeah, that's really interesting about Animorphs, too, because I had noticed when I've been looking at IMDb pages when we watch different episodes that a lot there's a lot of overlap between who's working on Animorphs and who's working on Goosebumps. And I think that a lot of, at least the, the watchers who are our age, were also making that transition ourselves from yes. reading Goosebumps to reading Animorphs. Uh, the only problem with Animorphs was that they couldn't afford to do the morphing. <laughs> <laughs> morphing in those days was so expensive that if you look back and edit, most of the time we actually couldn't show the morph. We would do as much as we could physically where maybe they'd cut away and there'd be a couple of lines would appear on them. And then we would cut away and you'd see the reaction of going, oh my God, and then cut back and they were doing it. And then once per episode, we could afford to actually do the full morphing. But for a show that was called Animorphs, not being able to morph <laughs> very often kind of killed us. So I, that did not do well at all. And I have a feeling that if they wouldn't have done that push, Goosebumps might have kept going. I mean, there's so many more episodes we could have done. There's so many more books we could have covered. But the decision was made that Goosebumps had run its day. So after four years and 74 episodes, it was done. Yeah, yeah actually, the morphing that you were just describing, that's exactly what happens in um, The Girl Who Cried Monster, right? You see his face and him about to eat the bug. And then you see her reaction. And then you see the bug-eyed monster face in his place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oldest trick in the book. <laughs> uh, another another great L, uh, director was uh, John Bell. Um, John Bell directed the very first episode, um, Girl Who Cried Monster, but he also directed a lot of other great episodes like A Click, Don't Go to Sleep, Bad Hair Day, <laughs> Return of the Mummy, Phantom of the Auditorium, and The Cuckoo Clock of Doom. Oh, those are oh, classic. Yeah. Great episode. Yeah. Uh, I think actually Cuckoo Clock of Doom is another one that's kind of, it flies under the radar a bit, but it's a very tight script. And I think everything works really well in that episode. Um, it's only 22 minutes long. It's not an hour long, but there's a whole story to tell there and it's told well. And yeah, John Bell was uh, one of these guys. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away now. He was a very um, intense man. He would come in uh, with a whole uh, sort of plan. Um, and I really respected John Bell. And I was very, very sad to hear that he had passed away. But, um, you know, that was a long time ago. So some people have passed away. Um, I believe Patrick Doyle as well has passed away, the producer. And he was kind of, he'll always be in the opening credits because Patrick Doyle played R.L. Stein in the opening credits. He's the gentleman that walks out um, with the, the hat and the briefcase and his <laughs> his papers spill out and blow in the wind. We filmed that at his house oh, cool. and, and he played R.L. Stein. We did that on a Saturday. And um, again, when you do a TV series, you don't know how the what the theme music is going to be when you start it. You don't know what the opening uh, sequence is going to be like. And I remember that when I saw that the first time, I thought, wow, that's a great opening and don't forget, it ran every episode. I mean, it always had that opening. Shows have changed now where they don't have that sort of mash, had the same opening every time. It's changed now. Uh, but in those days, I think kids took comfort in watching that 30-second opening and seeing those wriggling worms and, and the, the smoke and the, the kids in the shadows. There's a lot of little spooky things going on in that opening sequence. And uh, yeah, so that was Patrick Doyle uh, that, that did that, um, who I'd worked with before. Um, and he was... Um, uh, he retired after that series, uh, but there's a lot of other people that were very important in that uh, show. Deborah Forte was one of the producers. Um, she had a lot to do with that. Uh, a supervising producer was a gentleman named Bill Siegler, and he was there every day uh, making sure that things were going well. He was he was American, but he was up here, and he was a very experienced producer. Uh, I don't think he's with us anymore, but um, I think he 
was instrumental in making one big decision. And that was that we decided after the season two to stop filming nights for the night scenes. Mm. We hired a new director of photography, Barry Berg Thorson, and he was tasked with doing something called Day for Night which is you film it during the day, but you use special lighting techniques and camera techniques and it looks like night. And that was, I think, quite revolutionary because once that happened, maybe the night scenes didn't look quite as dark and deep, but it made everything a lot easier. We got, I think, great performances from the kids now. Uh, We didn't have to work all night. Uh, We were happier. And so there was a lot of decisions that were made, but I think that was the one that made everybody the happiest was when we actually went to the new DOP. Although Brian Hebb, uh, the first director of photography, you have to remember again, he was like me. He was operating the camera while he was lighting it. Nobody does that anymore. He was doing both. Incredible. Our sound man for season one, Ian Hendry, he had one person to hold a boom microphone. Mm -hmm. If you have three people and people walking, you can't do it. So I did a lot of the second boom. Oh, wow. (laughs) Prop men are this really unique thing where we're not actually doing anything during the take. Usually we're just standing by. So a lot of times they'd say, Alan, I want you to do second boom. And I'd come up and I would do it. And, you know, it was fun. But uh, yeah, Brian Hebb was another uh, great, great man who did a lot. He did a lot uh, for that show, set it up, and then, you know, prepared Barry Brigthorson to take over um, and and to take it in another direction lighting-wise. But those are some of the people that really shaped the show, in my opinion, um, were were some of those people there. So the the point about the boom brings up something something else I wanted to ask you. It seems like with props as with so many other, you know, sort of non-performance things that, that go into making a television show or a movie, when everything goes right, it all blends together so seamlessly that people are maybe sort of not noticing all of that detail that goes in just because it's feeding the story. So what's one thing you want people to know about the kind of work you do or the kind of work that goes into something like this? <laughs> well, <sighs> that's a very interesting question. You know, I want to take it to another film level. Props doesn't get a lot of respect, unfortunately. I work with a gentleman named Jeff Melvin, and he was a props master. He got out of that and he became a set decorator, and he won an Academy Award for it, for um, Shape of Water. Oh, cool. There is no Academy Award for props. Wow. I don't understand why. There's one for every other department, but there's no Academy Award for props. And I, I just can't understand why sometimes... The movie is named after the prop, the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, right. right. Uh, I worked on a TV series called Witchblade. I mean, it was about, you know, a woman with a retractable blade. I mean, it was named after the prop. And of course, I didn't even get a parking spot with my own name on it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, we do a lot. Um, but, you know, we're kind of low down on the pecking in the pecking order. And it's changed a lot, too. Props, frankly, has got a lot more complicated now. Um, in my day, a lot of the times you just basically had to have maybe a set of keys um, a wallet, some money, something like that. Nowadays, uh, there's a lot of tech in props. Um, I worked on a show called Pacific Rim. Oh, yeah. A, mo- a movie that was huge. There was so much technology, custom-made things that had to light up and flash and uh, computers. And, and you know, I think, uh, although I've tried to keep up with it, it, it's kind of a young man's game now. Um, and I wouldn't want to be a prop master on a TV series in 2021 with all the technology, with me as a 61-year-old. I think it's a young man's game. And that's kind of why I got out of it. Um, but you have to remember when I was doing Goosebumps, I was 35. <laughs> and uh, I was young. And uh, But I will say this about Goosebumps. It was a terrific time. It was probably, in my career, my favorite time. 
because I liked the people that I worked with. And we all worked together year after year. I did five years with those people. And that doesn't usually happen on a TV series. Usually they finish a season and they go, see ya. No guarantees that you'll be back. You've done. Next year's a new contract. Every year, Lena Cordina, who was a production manager after Charles Brave left, said to me, Thank you, Alan, and we'll see you again next year. Mm, Just four months away. Be ready for me. And that's why I own this beautiful house, because she assured me that I'd be back doing another nine and a half months, making the kind of money I needed to make to buy this beautiful house in Toronto. And if I often say if it wasn't for her and those guarantees uh, that I'd be working again next year, I wouldn't have bought a house. And uh, I'm so glad I did. Yeah. I mean, as academic and people working in the arts ourselves, you know, secure labor conditions are what enable good art to be made, right? We all we all need roofs over our head if we want to make a cuckoo clock of doom. Yeah, you're describing my <laughs> mid-semester panic. It's like, are they going to hire me next semester? Don't know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, I've, I've always been um, t- tenuous in my employment. And, you know, I guess now the whole world's like that. But I mean, I started a time where a friend of mine, he worked at uh, the same brewery for 30 years and he retired uh, with a gold watch and everything. And, you know, so I, I didn't want that. I wanted to do something that was going to be a bit more fun and more interesting. And I've, I've, I've done it. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of academic, I have to say I'm impressed with both of you um, in terms of what you're doing here. And uh, I also think that I'm proud that somehow I inspired you in some way or uh, scared you a little bit or um, intrigued you a little bit. So yeah, that's, that's the one legacy I really do have from Goosebumps is that uh, kids try to find me out. They, uh, they, I've got a few people that have found me out on Facebook and uh, so on. People want me to sell them props. Um, I've had one kid that contacted me and told me that he's a wealthy kid. He's an investment banker. <laughs> Goosebumps is his thing. What can I sell him? Well, he's in the States and to ship something down to him. I mean, I just don't want to... I don't want to do it. I hope he's not watching. But um... Speaking of legacy, you know, I was talking with one of my students who's in college and who told me that they've, you know, dis- rediscovered or discovered or slash rediscovered the, the Goosebumps television show. And their favorite episode is Attack of the Mutant. And, and also, like, they talked about Adam West and all that. So it's like, it's cool that now that it's on Netflix and available, the legacy continues, you know? I am glad it's on Netflix. But do you notice that they haven't gotten, they don't have the best episodes on there? They don't have the haunted mask on, at least not on on my Netflix. And maybe it's U.S. Canada difference. Oh, that might be but, too. Yeah, but we watched it on Netflix here. Oh, good. Yes, um, yes. I I couldn't find uh, a bunch of them, and then I looked at an article saying that they've sort of. At, I guess at that point they held back uh, the ones that they think they could do the best with other sales from. Oh, I see. From from it, um, but you know, yeah, you're right. Uh, another thing we don't get, which drives me crazy, is the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone doesn't show in Canada on Netflix. Oh, wow. wow. But that's okay. I taped them all. It's another show that like I really love and like also grew up watching. And, and sometimes when you're not around, I'm like, I'm going to turn on the Twilight Zone while I'm working. <laughs> and we've been watching the other Rod Serling show, too. We got on DVD. The Night Gallery. The Night Gallery. Yes, yes. That very, the uh, the opening um, pilot for that um, is kind of famous in that it's directed, of course, by Spielberg. Uh, the one with uh, the, the woman who loses her eyesight. I showed that to my family one time. There's an episode with Roddy McDowell uh, where uh, somebody's climbing out of a, a crypt in that, out of, out of a coffin, and it scared the heck out of all of us in that room that night. So, 
yeah, Twilight Zone was great. And I actually got to work with some people that had been on, uh, or at least had worked with Rod Sterling. So um, that was kind of a big deal to me. Ozzy Davis is one. I worked with him and I asked him about Rod Sterling and he said he was always smoking, always smoking. <laughs> but yeah, Twilight Zone is a great show. I wish it showed in Canada on Netflix though, because it really inspired me. And it, uh, I think to a certain extent, I wouldn't be surprised if it maybe inspired Arl Stein a bit too. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because there's certain episodes that we're, we're like, oh, that's this Twilight Zone episode. And the, yeah, the, the twist in Welcome to Camp Nightmare is Third Planet from the Sun. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a pretty wild episode, actually. Uh, we filmed that out at summer camp, and a lot of the people stayed in the barracks in the little dorms there at night because it was pretty far away. We did one bit where they're fishing. I think they're fishing on a dock at one point. And um, I went out fishing with uh, the production manager in a little lake there with my walkie-talkie on. Uh, oh, yeah, no, uh, it's, it's in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. Uh, it was a summertime show. We only did one, ep- one wintertime ep- episode, wintertime episode which was a terror tower everything else was basically we did it in the summer and um yeah it was four years of my life it was a great time and i've done a lot since i've worked in horror since i worked on the it movies yeah i um, saw that oh wow and, and yeah. also Sweden. dracula 2000 yeah. right yeah i worked on dracula 2000 as well i did the second unit on that and uh horror is an interesting genre you can get really good at it in terms of what we do as props people you don't want to show too much. Yeah. You want to keep things dark. You want there to be maybe a cobweb or two that the camera has to brush past. We did a lot of that on Goosebumps. It should be a little smoky, you know, a little hazy. There should be dark shadows. Uh, there should be maybe blankets thrown over things or sheets thrown over things. Right. Those sort of things. They always, every horror movie you see is going to have some of those conventions. I used to like the thing where the camera would not let you see too much. It would get right in your face or somebody's face or over their shoulder. It's like, I want to see more. Pull out. Oh, they're not doing that by accident. <laughs> they're, they're, that's how you scare people. And um, yeah, we, we did a lot of scary stuff on that show. and uh, But never too scary. Never too nasty. I always felt that my kids could watch it okay and so on. And I didn't think we were doing anything too too bad. We had to fight against some other shows we were showing at the time. Erie, uh, Indiana, I think was one. Yeah, I remember that one. But I, I think that uh, we got the best ratings. We were huge for a while there. I remember being on streetcars um, and I would hear people talking about last night's episode in front of me. That's wow. so cool. And that's, that is something that you go, wow, this is really having an effect. And that happened several times where I would hear people talking about it. I mean, I remember I was in California. I happened to be in California when uh, Terror Tower premiered. And um, we had a little viewing party. And everybody in the room was amazed, first of all, that it wasn't filmed in the United States. It was filmed in a little hick town in Toronto. And then I told them that all the actors were, all the kids were Canadians too. Yeah. And um, really, I think uh, outside of a couple, we got, it was Canadian and we didn't want to tell people that. It was always taking place somewhere in the States, but everybody on the crew was Canadian, Torontonians. And um, I know you guys are American. You maybe don't want to know that, but it was a little Canadian television series that uh, we tried to pretend was American. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most of our shows, favorite shows we watched growing up were yeah. filmed in Canada. Like X-Files was yeah. largely in Canada and drama was in Canada. Yeah. yeah, well, there's a real raft of experiences, a lot of experienced people here. And I think we shouldn't end this episode without talking about perhaps one of the most talented people on the whole show, and that is Ron Stefanik, mm. better known as the man that made all the creatures from Goosebumps. Ah. Um, yes, he was. A, he's, he's a friend of mine, um, a very, very talented man, inspired by things like the same things as me. Uh, he loved horror and schlock, but Ron, uh, I believe, what was the name of his... Uh, Fantastic Creations, it was credited as, which I think he regretted. He later changed the studio's name to 
Ron Stefanik productions. But I think in all the Goosebumps, he's just credited simply as all creature effects by Fantastic Creations. And most of the times when Ron would show up, he'd had no sleep, maybe for that last night. They'd gone all night getting the costume ready. They'd show up with it. There'd only be one. If something went wrong with it, they had to fix it on the spot. And they would get ripped and torn. And, you know, by the end of the day, they'd they'd be in rough shape. But he had some amazing people working with him. But Ron Stefanik, I think, gave them 150% of what they paid for. And with the proviso that he kept it all. <laughs> oh. He owns all the suits. Oh, wow. He has them in a little museum of his, last I checked. Um, so cool. And uh, I have, I do have a photograph of myself in there with all the different... Uh, he's got everything. Even the the toaster camera, uh, <laughs> as I call it. And I think you know what I mean. Yeah, say, say Gene Guy. <laughs> yes. So uh, Alan's holding up a picture of the classic camera from Say Cheese and Die. And I love... Yes, it is kind of a toaster, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he. we handed him a working Polaroid camera, and a week later, he came back with that device. It was inside of that camera. It was on its side, and it worked terribly. It was really the worst prop I've ever handled because it just never worked. And so when Ryan holds up the camera and goes click like that, nothing would happen. But it was actually supposed to spit out the little Polaroid thing. And so we'd have to go, okay, cut. Props, could you get in there and fix it? And I fixed it and so on. And, you know, you you don't know it, but that was a real hassle, that camera. Yeah, that's another episode that um, I really think was uh, was quite interesting, you know, in that uh, imagine finding a camera that can do that, you know. Mm-hmm. tell you these sort of things i mean it's just just a great great episode yeah but and that's one of the few pictures i've got of myself holding the famous prop but uh, i do have more and i will post them and uh you guys can have a look at them and uh post them if you wish yeah that'd be amazing that yeah. Would, yeah and that one of course it's like say cheese and die was one of our favorite and obviously we named our podcast after it so <laughs> <laughs> i do have the original script from uh, uh say cheese and die again here somewhere too oh wow I kept a bunch of the uh, a bunch of the scripts. Um, oh wow! That's something you're allowed to keep. Uh, but nowadays, what they do is uh, they actually write your name across every page. If, if this is one I would get now, I would say Alan Doucette, sort of, you know, in in a light lighter uh, like a gray, and then every page as well would have my name written across it. So it's impossible to sell. Uh-huh. It's impossible to to uh, share with people, and so they really keep a lot of control uh, over. The scripts, we have to sign non-disclosure agreements. We can't say anything. I can't tell you much about what I did on It, the movie. Okay. But I did a lot of stuff. I was a props buyer on that. And when I saw that, I was scared. (laughs) (laughs) And on the second one, Stephen King came in and did a little uh, cameo in that. And uh, although it wasn't on set that day, that would have been great to meet Stephen King. Uh, Another great hero of mine. But yeah, I guess I like horror. And you guys like horror too. Yeah, I love it. But you also like to educate young people. And I think that's great. <laughs> and I really uh, appreciate you inviting me onto this. Yeah, thank you. It's so been much. a heck of a time, and let's do it again if you want. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Love that. That, yeah. Would, yeah, that would be amazing. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot of sort of questions that are directed at you. So maybe we can collect some of those and do that again. I'd be happy to, and um, I will uh, send you the photos that I have uh, shortly. Excellent. Great. Thank you so thank much. You so this much. Is wonderful. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Oh, one question: um, Where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter or something like? That? Um, well, I am on Twitter, um, and uh, my name is Prop Dude. All right, I'm Prop Dude on Twitter. I am on. Facebook as well with my name. Uh, I do limit the amount of contact I get on there just because I actually use my Facebook mostly for work. Uh, it's how I get work. And so sometimes people don't realize that uh, if I don't respond, it's because, well, first of all, film people work crazy hours. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're not the best people to 
get as pen pals. If you send us an email, we might not respond to it. And it's nothing personal, but I've just finished seven and a half months. I'm getting two weeks off and then I'm going to start on my next movie, which is going to go through till August. And that's why this was really good timing for you to do this. Um, and that's why I was able, I'm glad I could get all the little things I put together for you and scan the photos and so on. But generally the film industry is, is, is tough. And so if people want to get in touch with me, just, just bear in mind that it's not that I'm going to ignore you, but I'm a pretty busy guy still. <laughs> But yes, it was a pleasure doing business with you. And as I say, um, maybe uh, in the near future, if any of the viewers have questions, we could do another one. Um, there's a few other things I might be able to do uh, is pull up some of the clips um, and talk about what I was doing on them. Yeah, yeah. that would be amazing. Um, and I could even show you some of the mistakes that we made. Uh, we made a few mistakes. Uh, that'll be for another episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 I think so. We could maybe even do a video. Yeah, video for sure. One. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, I could. I, I've done it before where I describe stuff and. And uh, yeah, as I say, I was there for every minute, but nobody else was really. I was the only person. I mean, everybody left the show or directors only did one episode. I did every episode, every minute of, of the day I was there. And uh, it was a big part of my life. And that's why. And, and it's a good thing I have a good memory <laughs> still. Yeah. Not the best memory, but I do remember a lot about that. And certainly more than you can cover in a one one hour uh, interview. But um, as I say, um, it's been fun and let's do it again soon. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much.